0: Whoa!
1: Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. And the first thing I want to do today is to say hello to a lot of wonderful people that I met and some I re-met, again, from Northern California, particularly the Bay Area. They call it the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland Area. I recently attended and spoke at the California Association for Natural Family Planning at their workshop, their congress, their conference, whatever, and they had all kinds of people there that were great speakers and I was also invited to speak. I was honored to do that. But I also met a lot of great people, a lot of you who came up to me and expressed your appreciation for our program here from Light of the East and introduced yourselves and we had some great conversations. So I want to say hello to all of you and thank you for being there for listening to the talks and certainly my talks <laughs> as well. And also thank you for listening to Light of the East. I want to say especially a hello to Sandra and also Anne, a couple of you that came up to me and also sent me some nice letters. And hello to all of you who are listening, but in particular, our good friends all over California, especially Northern California. It's always a pleasure to hear from you and to meet you. And again, to contact me or write to me, the best place to do that is the Email address, TaborLife at Earthlink.net. That's Tabor, like Mount Tabor, T-A-B-O-R, TaborLife, L-I-F-E, TaborLife at Earthlink.net. So again, hello to everybody and thank you. Especially thank you for listening to Light of the East. As I mentioned, the conference was about natural family planning, which is not just about techniques, it's about spirituality. It's about what the church says. It's about the divine and created order. God's created order, as he himself, our divine being, God, the author of creation, as he set it in motion, the way he designed things, the whole created order, in particular, the human person, and most particularly about the human person, our ability to love as God loves, to be loving and to be fruitful. In other words, our sexuality. And along with that whole world of our human sexuality nowadays, of course, comes many, many controversies, much confusion, many what we call hot button issues. In our last program, and also on this one, we're talking about how, from the Eastern Christian spirituality, there can be found a reservoir for answers and how to articulate the church's position on many of these hot button issues, especially the things that are really hot now, such as the transgender issue and the same sex marriage and so on. And of course, as always, contraception. Last time we said that if we draw from the reservoir of the Eastern Christian churches, that Eastern Christian spirituality, we mentioned that one of the first places we go is to that ascetical discipline, in other words, monasticism. The two touchstones that we're going to refer to here our two reservoirs, are going to be those two great, great strengths of the Eastern churches, monasticism and liturgy. We mentioned last time that from monasticism, we see a number of things. First and foremost, a radical acceptance and living out of that one same baptismal promise that we all make as baptized Christians. And that involves deferring to an authority higher than ourselves, dying to ourselves and rising to a God who is so much greater than we are. And exercising the necessary disciplines day in and day out of small ways of dying to self or sometimes large ways and rising then to our truest, fullest self, our most authentic self. In other words, rising to holiness. And the spiritual life is all about that. It's not about just what I feel, what I want. It's not about taking the created order and changing it according to our desires and whims or our own disorders. Rather, monasticism teaches us that life is about deferring to a God who is so much greater than we are, so much holier than we are, the source of all creation, to defer to that God and to his authority and to make ourselves worthy of that God by dying to ourselves, stripping away all that is not our real self and opening ourselves to God's grace and therefore becoming our real selves. Another word for this is divinization or theosis, that ongoing growth into the image and likeness of Christ. We also see from Gnosticism that the church has a sense of, of hierarchy. It does function in a certain verticality. In other words, we acknowledge the great traditions that have come down before us. Now, by tradition, I mean capital T. I don't mean just things like, well, we traditionally put candles on a birthday cake. We're not talking about superficial things. We're talking about things that have been tried and true for centuries, going all the way back to the biblical times, the Old Testament times, and certainly the early Christian times. Monasticism honors those that came before us. It teaches us to do that. It teaches us to honor the fathers and spiritual mothers that came before us that laid down the teachings of the church. In other words, it's not so much the teachings of the church, The church really doesn't have teachings per se. It does, but to be more exact, the church teaches. It points to what God has revealed. We sometimes call that church teachings. I guess you can, but I prefer to say that it is God who has the teachings. The church teaches. The church points to those things. And it does so over centuries. And that's why in monasticism, there is a great reverence for spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and abbots the wise people that came before us that were our mentors. And there's a sense then from that that the church knows something that maybe the world doesn't or that we may not know or understand fully, but that we have to trust it. We have to trust those that came before us, the venerables, you know, they call it the status, in other words, the wise men, the wise women, the spiritual masters that came before us that laid down these things that we call teachings. Monasticism teaches us and models for us the great respect we ought to have for those things. We live in a time when for some reason we think we can just callously throw away anything that came before our time, that the only thing that matters, that counts is what we are experiencing in this moment, in our own time, as if we know better. It's a tendency of our times, unfortunately. But what monasticism does is it teaches us that honor and reverence for those who came before us, especially the holy ones, who bequeath this great body of truth to us that we defer to and try to follow, even though it oftentimes is a great struggle. But that's where the asceticism comes in, that dying to self, rising to our true self, well, beyond monasticism, as I mentioned, there is also the reservoir of the church's liturgy. How does a liturgy give us the reservoir, the, the touchstone, the home base to help us understand and answer the hot-button issues of our day? We have to understand something about liturgy, first of all. Everything moves in and out of liturgy. That's why the church says the Eucharist is the source and summit of our existence. Liturgy is informed by life. We bring life to the liturgy. And the liturgy, in a sense, takes life and it offers it back to God. It purifies it. It gives it the right perspective. And then it gives it back to us. And we take that vision back out into our lived experience. So there's an in and out kind of motion to liturgy. In other words, think of it as like the hub of the wheel. All the spokes go into the hub of the wheel, and from the hub of the wheel comes that energy that goes out to the spokes that makes a wheel turn. So liturgy is like that. Something goes in, and something comes out from it. There's that flow. And because it is that way, liturgy then becomes the context, the constant, the structure, the reservoir out of which we come to understand, see, and experience and participate in truth. In other words, the way that the church prays, especially in her highest office, which is the liturgy, the Eucharist, the way that the church prays and everything that goes along with that, art, architecture, gesture, words, and so on, all those things put together Give us, then, the constant. That's where we go to stay on track. Now, in the liturgies of the Eastern churches, in particular the Byzantine churches, of which I am a member, the liturgy has remained very constant. Not static, but constant. There's a difference. Liturgy does evolve, but there's also a certain constant to it. And that dimension, the constant, Is why it provides such a great context for our understanding and be able to combat and even articulate a lot of these hot button issues in the area of human sexuality. The liturgy, especially the Eastern churches, has the constant in terms of its fundamental orientation. Its fundamental orientation is first and foremost that transcendence of God. Once again, here comes that principle of deferring, like we saw in monasticism, that there is something greater than ourselves something that goes beyond what we think and feel, no matter how much we think and feel it, no matter how deep or developed our ideologies are, philosophies, how deep and strong our feelings are, whether good or bad, there is something greater than us. And our orientation has to be toward that something. And that something is God, the transcendent God. Many people ask me if in the Eastern churches, if we underwent the same kinds of changes as in the Latin Rite Church, in particular in the liturgy. And I respond by saying the Second Vatican Council had a profound effect on the Eastern Churches, but in a different way. Our liturgy has remained constant. Again, difference between constant and static. It is not static, it is constant. And those things that are constant, such as the fundamental orientation, and along with that comes... The way a church looks, the way it's decorated, the way it's designed, how we behave, and what we do in the church, all those things are the constant because they communicate some basic realities, basic principles. And you see, the reason why there's a lot of confusion today in our world, even among people in the church about these hot button issues, transgenderism, same sex marriage, and so on, the reason why there's a lot of confusion is because some of the constant has undergone some variables, some attacks, some changes, some confusions. But in the Eastern churches, one of the things that has been our constant in addition to monasticism has been this liturgy. We're we'll gonna talk more about the liturgy as a constant in regard to the hot button issues when we return. I'm Father
0: Thomas Loya on Light of the East. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois 60491. And may God grant you
1: You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Pope John Paul II once said Humanity, its dignity and its balance, at every moment and on every place on earth, will depend upon who he is for her and who she is for him. I am Father Thomas Loya with a Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. Why are we a man? Why are we a woman? Unless we know the why, we do not know the how to be man or a woman, and therefore we do not know how to really be for each other. The why behind being a man or woman is told in the theology of our gendered bodies. Our bodies speak a language. Gender reveals God. Through gender, we can actually participate in the way that God loves us. We can love as God loves. Human sexuality is an icon of the very interior life of the Holy Trinity. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host, and we're talking about how the two dimensions of the Eastern churches and their spirituality, meaning monasticism and liturgy, can provide a very relevant, very relevant reservoir in which to confront, engage, articulate, understand, combat, fight against some of the hot button issues of our day, in particular the same-sex marriage and the transgenderism, because those are very hot issues today, lots of confusion. And I bring this up because I want to communicate the fact that the Eastern churches are not just a history lesson or a museum piece. They are as relevant today as they have always been, and they have something to offer us in regard to these very contemporary issues. We're talking about the sense of transcendence in liturgy and its sense of constant. And also, in the liturgy, there is communicated over and over again, especially in the Byzantine liturgy. God, who is Trinity. Now, that's a very, very important starting point. It's not enough to say that God is just one God. We can say many things about God, all of which are true. He's omnipotent, He's loving, and so on. But something very, very significant is going to be found in the idea that God is Trinity. The God that we believe in is Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this comes through in the Byzantine liturgy over and over again. We're profoundly Trinitarian. We even end our prayers invoking the Trinity. Why is this significant? Because God as Trinity is a God who is relational within Himself. He's a union and communion of persons. And that God who is relational within Himself created us, and He created us in His image, meaning He created us to be like Himself, relational, seeking love and intimacy. Now, this is going to have tremendous implications for us in these hot button issues because it starts to define then who we are as human beings, more so why we are the way we are, and therefore what our deepest desires are, and from that, what is honest to those desires, what is consistent with those desires, with how God made us. He made us in His image and likeness, which means He made us for relationship, for intimacy, for love. So this is what's going to be underneath all of our desires. And this is what we have to understand when it comes to these hot-button issues, that even if in disordered ways, outright evil or perverted ways, even if in those ways, what we as human beings search for is intimacy. We want relational intimacy. We want it first and foremost with God. And again, that's why the fundamental orientation at liturgy in the Eastern churches is everyone facing the altar, facing east, ad orientum, as it might be said in the Western church, because we're all acknowledging by that orientation what our ultimate desire and destiny is. It is for God and union with God. So, Whenever we have desires, and as they go, oftentimes out of control or disordered through sin, and unfortunately in our culture, we are making lifestyles out of those disorders and sanctioning them and actually almost like waving a flag about them, promoting them, we have to understand that they ultimately come from a desire for God. And what's that going to do for us? Well, that's going to tell us that, okay, we should... We'll be happiest when we seek an answer for those desires that is consistent with God, with God's order. That to thumb our nose at God's order, to think that we can recreate another order, is not going to bring us happiness, personally or universally, or universally this is the first thing that we can conclude by acknowledging God who is Trinity and that we are made like that God. So we understand then what it is we're searching for ultimately. We may not recognize that, but if we look into the liturgy allow the liturgy to teach us, to inform us, we'll start to see these things. And this is why liturgy is so important. One of those touchstones of the Eastern spirituality, liturgy and monasticism. Those are our two reservoirs we're going to to answer these very relevant questions of the hot button issues of our day. Also, because liturgy has the affirmation of God as Trinity, and we are made like that, liturgy also communicates the next aspect of God. God is incarnational. Now, the incarnation was about God moving out from the Trinity. In particular, in in the person of the second person of the Trinity, who, of course, we know as Jesus Christ, he moves out from that Trinity to become his own creation, to enter into relationship with us, with all of creation, in particular the human person. Now, that's a marvelous mystery, a great mystery. How can we understand it? We only understand it by way of analogy. And even then, analogies always fall short. But they're the closest we can come to expressing or trying to articulate a tremendous mystery as a God, a creator, who would become his own creation while still remaining the creator. We grope for analogies to explain so great a mystery, and that predominant analogy that the church arrives at, based upon the scriptures, is one of nuptials, of a marriage, of a spousal love, a spousal mystery. And again, since we're made like that God, this God who is Trinity and who enters into spousal love, it must mean that we too seek spousal love. We're made for that because we're made in God's image and likeness. You see how easy it is You just put the two together. It's real simple truth is always simple but profound. It may have been something you never thought of before. God is Trinity. We're made like God. He incarnates Himself, enters into a spousal relationship, and since we're made to image Him, then those things pertain to us as well. So you see, we're getting down into the foundation of our desires and the why behind us as humans. Now, because God is this way, the liturgy, and as I mentioned, you notice I said the art, the architecture, the gesture, the rubrics, the ritual, everything is set up in the church at least it has been traditionally through the centuries, it's set up in the church to express and to help us actually enter into the mystery of a God who is Trinity and who loves in a spousal relationship with us. So, that means that the art, the architecture, the way the church is laid out is going to express that and it's going to be very specific In the Eastern churches, there is still preserved that design of the ancient Jewish temple, which had different zones. Now, those zones included the Holy of Holies, which was set apart, set off by a veil from all the rest of the temple. And only the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies once a year for the holiest purpose to offer sin offerings on behalf of himself and the people. And he entered into the Holy of Holies, he himself, no one else was allowed, because he represented two things. He represented the bride, Israel, entering into the privacy, the intimacy of the bridal chamber, which was the Holy of Holies, in anticipation of the great union between the bridegroom, God, and the bride, Israel. So, the Holy of Holies becomes, as it were, a nuptial chamber, like a wedding canopy. In classic church architecture, both East and West, and particularly in the Eastern churches, this layout that preserves this nuptial relationship between God and us is preserved by the setting off, the setting apart, of the sanctuary from the nave. In the Eastern churches, it's done with the icon screen. And just like in the Old Testament temple, only the priest goes beyond that screen. In other words, the ordained ministers, the priest and bishop and deacon, and only at certain times do they pass through that screen, that they pass through the center of it. The screen is actually like a wall. It's called an iconostasis or icon screen. It's an elaborate wall from floor to ceiling decorated with icons with three sets of doors. The middle door is the Holy of Holies. That's the the door of the gate of heaven. Because the sanctuary symbolizes not only that nuptial chamber, that mystical nuptial chamber, but the Holy of Holies, which of course is one and the same. After all, remember, the book of Revelations, the Bible ends. The smash ending of the Bible is all about the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, and the nuptial chamber are one and the same. And so the priest enters in there as the only authorized person for the loftiest of reasons. And when he does, He represents the bride, the church, but at times he turns towards the people, and in those moments he represents the bridegroom Christ coming to meet his bride. If you ever experienced a Byzantine liturgy, or even the Mass in the Roman Church, especially something like the Tridentine Mass or the Mass as it was prior to Second Vatican Council, you'll experience the same thing where the priest faces the East, everyone faces the altar, but at times the priest will turn towards the people. And those moments when he represents Christ, the bridegroom coming to the people, it's when the priest is actually bringing something to the people, the Eucharist, the Word of God, or a blessing. So it's as though Christ, the bridegroom, were coming to enter mystically into his bride. We're going to talk more about the relevancy of the Eastern churches and today's hot-button issues another time. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East.
0: To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media.